Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. guides here uh, to share with you often the scandalous and exciting little bits of history. We are back at you this month of February with another great episode. As always, my name is Becca. I'm Rebecca. And together we are the Rebecca's. Uh, we are here. It is February. It is still winter in Washington, D.C., but we're still out and about leading tours. So if you're going to be in Washington, if you're starting to make plans for spring break or summer travel, we'd love to see you. You can see our full tour schedule, dcbyfoot.com, or you can always shoot us an email, info at dcbyfoot.com. Let us know what you're interested in, and we can definitely hook you up with a tour, whether it's um, one of our public tours or a private tour. We'd love to have you. As Rebecca says, we're almost better in person. It's true. I think, I think we are indeed better. And uh, as you may know, of course, February is Black History Month. Hopefully you know that. If you've listened to this podcast, you should definitely know that because every February we turn a slightly larger spotlight onto Black history. But as I like to note, Black history is American history. These are stories and people that should be talked about year round. Um, they're an integral part of the American story. So we're focusing on it February, but hopefully as you listen to the pod, we make sure to integrate that into what we do every single month. Yes, Black History is American history, and the father of Black history is from Washington, D or lived in Washington, D.C., Carter Woodson. His home is a museum today. There is nearby a rather significant memorial, like statue to him. Carter Woodson decides that it's going to be Black history. Originally, it was actually Negro history, and it was a week, not a month. And he deliberately picked February. So there's always, at the beginning of Black history, there is always like a meme that goes around that it's the shortest month. He picked it that way deliberately, actually, because Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass were both born in February. So it is a deliberate choice to select. It was first a week, and then it got expanded to a full month. Uh, and it is the time that we take to spend some extra time and talk about the richness and fullness of Black history and how integral it is and how you can't really separate Black history from American history. It is part of the fabric of this country and the stories are in all parts of American history and throughout. And so we would like to take this time to talk specifically and to sort of focus a little bit more acutely just in February and so this week, we are going to talk about a man named Benjamin Banneker. 
And hopefully, if you are listening to this and you are uh, someone who lives in the D.C. area, this name should ring a bell. There are quite a few things named in D.C. for Benjamin Banneker. If it's a new name for you, that's okay. But uh, take note of it, especially if you're living in the D.C. region, because once you're familiar with the name, it's going to pop up in parks and schools and streets and places. So this is an important name in our region. Yes. Benjamin Banneker, this is a little local. We're doing a little like local flavor here. I love it. He's a local hero and should be better known. Benjamin Banneker was born somewhat locally right outside of Baltimore in 1731. So to put that in a little context, he's born the year before George Washington. So they're of a similar age. This is sort of, it's still Maryland colony, we are not American yet. We're still British. And he is African-American. He is not a lot is known about his sort of background. His mother was named Mary. His father was named Robert. His mother was a free black woman. His father, a freed slave from Guinea. But there's conflicting accounts about sort of their background and sort of how they come to be together. Banneker himself will describe being of African descent. He, in his surviving papers and his earliest biographers, describe him as having only African ancestry. However, there are later biographers that there's a suggestion that his mother's mother was a white former indentured servant named Molly Welsh. She had a relationship with an African slave named Veneca, which is presumably where the last name comes from. And this is all kind of comes up well after everyone involves death. So it is impossible at this point to substantiate. There is also a suggestion that he may have been a member of the Dogon people who have, anthropologists have claimed that they're apparently quite skilled in astronomy. That'll become significant in a minute. And the more analysis, there's been a lot of analysis sort of done. And again, none of this we know for sure, but there is a report that says that there is a village called Banaka in present-day Liberia, northwestern Liberia, that perhaps his family descended from, and that's where the last name comes from. But we don't know is really the point. The only things we know for sure about him is that he was born in 1731 and he was born free. So he was never enslaved. And I, I think before we delve in too deep, I think it's worth noting that the difficulty in substantiating this information comes from sort of two aspects. One, we are, again, we're talking about before the American Revolution. We're talking about before the kind of documentation and paperwork you might have for counties and cities in the United States that we might come to expect more in the 19th century. This is still very early into the 18th century when he's born. But secondly, and this is something I think historians and, and public historians like ourselves have to grapple with, is that this documentation, this sort of written record when it comes to Black history in the United States is often lost, right? It's not deemed or seen as significant or of import to record and keep this work or preserve it over time. And so, so many of these records particularly when we're talking about Black communities in the United States, we're often lost and no one saw the value of this. If you've maybe perhaps paid attention to some things that have happened locally in D.C. with Howard University, I think there's a little uh, kind of thread there of these records and, and documents and papers that can be so important can often get overlooked or pushed to the side and unfortunately sometimes sadly lost to history. So you do the best you can. And uh, I think Rebecca's done a good job sort of qualifying what later historians and research might point to. But the truth is there's very, very little record. And this is a thread, I think, through a lot of Black history in the United States. 
And, you know, as somebody, I know that Becca's family is interested in genealogy. My family is, as, or I've done a lot of genealogy on my family. Like, as you go further back in time, records get more tenuous. They're harder to come by, particularly for women, for a lot of obvious reasons. But one of the things that I learned when I do was doing genealogy on my own family is that if you're an African-American, if you have any African-American descent in your family, at some point, there's a hard stop in your genealogic research that doesn't exactly exist for families of who are descended from Europeans. And so it's a really curious thing that people, there's half of their history is it just doesn't exist, that there is a hard stop in someone who was brought to this country. We don't necessarily know where, we don't necessarily know what language or their parents or anything like that. And so there's a there are missing pieces of Black history of genealogy of people who are interested in sort of doing uh, this kind of work. There's a, a lot of missing pieces to that. And I think that that should be more sort of recognized and acknowledged than kind of it is. And just as a little, I think, tag to that is that's why it's so fascinating to see what can be done in the present day with DNA research and the kind of intersection of DNA study and genealogical study and how we can utilize information that we can gather either through family lore, family legend, the kinds of records that might have been held on to a photo album or a Bible or a church registry, and then take that and pair that with DNA to really come down to that nitty gritty uh, that we want to know. So there's some fantastic work being done in that realm. But I, I just, before we dug too further into Banneker, I think it's worth noting that so much is hard to substantiate. And I say that because there's a lot of urban legend around Banneker. And I think it does a disservice to his actual life and his accomplishments to just focus on what sort of potentially just accredited to him rather than what he actually did and what we can substantiate. Yes. So at any rate, he grows up in rural Baltimore County in the 1730s and 40s. It is not exactly clear, again, how he learned to read and write. He did. That much is clear that he did. But where exactly? There's some idea that he had, there was a, a school near his family's land that he is going to befriend. There's a, a story that he befriends a Quaker uh, named Peter Heinrich, who has a school near their family farm. And Quakers, as we've talked about before, were leaders in the anti-slavery movement. They were advocates of uh, racial equality, and they're going to be very much involved throughout the country in abolition movements, in education movements. And so it is not that this has the sort of ring of truth to me that there was a teacher at some point in a Quaker capacity that recognized that Benjamin was clearly exceptional and put a lot of time and effort and thought into uh, educating him. At some point, so he, at the age of 21, he displays extraordinary ability. He's going to reportedly complete a wooden clock that's literally one of the first like wooden clocks to be created in the uh, United States. Um, he modifies it from a pocket watch design and it continues to work until his death, which was 50 years later. So he creates a clock that manages to keep accurate time for 50 years. And this is someone who has literally no formal education. And like he would not have been encountering clocks frequently. I mean, we're talking rural Maryland right. in this time period, right. it was later referred to um, the area to which this clock that he created as one of the curiosities of the wild region. So the idea that somebody would have such a thing at the time was so fascinating. I am, I am intrigued by his mind. Yes, very much. And in 1772, 
three brothers, the Ellicott brothers, move nearby, Andrew, John, and Joseph. And just as a note about the Ellicotts, we're going to talk about them for a hot minute, but they all live in the same town. They all have kids and they all name their kids after each other. So there's like four generations of Andrews, but they're not, it, it gets confusing real fast. <laughs> so at any rate, they are going to construct grist mills. Big mills, this really fascinating idea. They actually are going to revolutionize farming in this area by persuading farmers to plant wheat instead of tobacco. They turn what becomes known as Ellicott's Mills, Maryland, becomes one of the largest milling and manufacturing towns in the East. They have all their kids there. The town is still named for them. It's called Ellicott City today. It is not far from Baltimore. It is still there. They introduce fertilizer to revitalize the soil. They're friendly with signers of the Declaration of Independence, like Charles Carroll, who signs for the Declaration from Maryland, is an early convert. Tobacco is a little bit difficult to grow in Maryland, and so they're going to convert that to wheat, which is a little bit easier on the soil. And so that's sort of one of their big innovations. They sort of adopt Benjamin is how this ties back in. And they are also Quakers. So again, we have that belief in equality. We have that idea of education. We have the idea that there is no difference, that we're all equal. And they're going to work with him educate him and they he, he has to borrow equipment he shows promise benjamin banneker does in mathematics and astronomy and so they're going to provide him with all kinds of equipments encouragement help and he gets involved with their sons become surveyors and so that's kind of where this is ultimately going to go and I'll just make a little note on land surveying at this time, because as you may have recalled, we've talked about George Washington on this podcast. That's his first gig, really, is being a land surveyor. It's not surprising that that's kind of busting out as a field of study and a field for work in the 1770s, 1780s, 1790s, because we're becoming a new country. And part of that means understanding this land, understanding who has a claim to what, what is the landscape, what can we grow, how can we use it. And so this is very fortuitous timing, I think, for Banneker to be connected and make this connection with the Ellicott family, because he had not up to this point really had any experience with land surveying. But this is something Thing to which he'll have an aptitude for, and there's going to be a demand for. He's grown up on a tobacco farm, but tobacco is really on its way out in this region as everyone's moving to wheat. And now he's got a chance with astronomy and with mathematics, but I think the land surveying is really much like Washington. And again, he's sort of a peer to Washington in age that he sort of is intersecting into that same field of study. When it comes to astronomy, I want to mention too that when he's getting to know the Ellicotts and he's starting to explore these new areas of study, he's not young. He's in his 40s and 50s at this point. And I love that. There's sort of that sense of you're never too old to learn new things. Banneker has a deep-rooted curiosity. He forecasts his first eclipse on his own when he's 58 years old. So I think it's really incredible that he's sort of got this willingness and this eagerness to continue to learn and expand a well past being a young man. So I just want to kind of contextualize that he's, you know, 40s and 50s at this point. Yes. And he catches the notice of a lot of important people. In 1790, something happens which changes the destiny of this particular area of the world forever, which is that Congress, which at that point is in Philadelphia, 
they passed something called the Residency Act. And the Residency Act basically states that fulfilling the dictate in the Constitution, we are going to create a federal city. And the Residency Act specifically states where. <laughs> so the Constitution provides for a federal capital city and is not specific about like the location, which, as I point out on my tours, would seem to me to be an important detail. <laughs> And so the Residency Act is basically designed to sort of clear that up. It's going to give, and the idea of creating this brand new city is going to fall sort of administratively to the Secretary of State, who's a guy that you may have heard of named Thomas Jefferson. Any, any, did he's, anybody heard of him? Yeah, he goes on to do some things. He's going to ask a surveyor who's local to this region named Andrew Ellicott, <laughs> to survey the land that is going to contain the new federal district. Andrew Ellicott is the actually son of Joseph Ellicott, one of the original ones we talked about. So like I said, they are all named for each other. <laughs> and he's going to lead in February of 1791, a surveying team to assist basically create the boundaries of this new federal city that we're going to make. Ellicott hires Banneker as a replacement to assist with the initial survey of the district boundaries. He advances him $60 for travel to and from in and out of Georgetown. And they together are going to measure, literally survey, what the boundaries for this new federal district are going to be. I'll note that this is the first time that Banneker's traveled more than 10 miles from the farm that he has lived on his entire life. So this is... I think it's exciting. It's unusual. It's, um, I think, a bit of a scary undertaking. There's been a bit of a maybe cushion, I'd say, around him being in this rural area of Maryland, not to say that his family didn't face discrimination, but they've been somewhat isolated from the reality of the day-to-day in more integrated areas or places where the interactions are a little more intense. So imagine going from this very rural spot where you basically know everybody, everybody knows you, to now traveling in and out of Georgetown, which has a massive slave market, which has a massive port city, people coming Mm -hmm. in from all across the mid-Atlantic, all across the United States. You're working with a team of workers that you don't know. He knows the Ellicott's, but he doesn't know many of the other people on this team. He's a bit of a curiosity to the newspaper. He's described by one Georgetown newspaper as an Ethiopian, which is, we don't believe to be correct based on anything we know about his family and his family history. But he's said to be this curiosity. People want to know more about him. Who's the strange man? And Jefferson is given the credit in a couple Georgetown newspapers for sort of discovering this unusual Black man with these abilities. And in the 1790s, it's important to note, literacy rates for white men is fairly low, let alone white women. And then when you add non-white men into the mix, like there's not a lot of like an an African-American who can not only read and write, but also understands mathematics and astronomy. He has plotted the celestial navigations of different planets. He's created a bunch of different things. Mathematics, I was told there would be no math. This is not obviously my area of expertise, but he seems really accomplished. He seems to know what he's talking about. And so that must have been such an interesting, curious experience. Suddenly there are not only more people than he has ever probably met before in his life, different people, but also people are treating him as 
kind of a celebrity in a weird way, like a curiosity. He's he's new. He's an oddity, but it's interesting. People are intrigued by it. What does this mean? Um, And I will give credit to the Ellicott's who he is paid not equal to the work that Andrew is going to do, but he's paid pretty much on par with what assistant land surveyors would have made at the time, $2 a day. And so he's paid and compensated for his work in a way that is somewhat on par, given the fact that he's not the lead on this project. They're also very considerate of the fact that he is not a young man at this point. So they're often going to give him tasks and jobs that allow him to observe as opposed to climbing up and down ravines or wading out into the cold river water uh, to look at things. So um, he's sort of, they're very considerate of his age, which I think is to their credit, that they find a place for him on this team where he really can thrive. And so the idea here is we're going to measure this territory that's going to become the District of Columbia. Originally, the district was supposed to be 10 square miles on each side. Yay. And they're going to set the boundary. They're going to place what are called boundary stones, boundary marker stones uh, at every mile along the border of this new capital. So if you pull up on your phone a map of Washington, D.C., basically the way I describe it is it looks like somebody, the district just took a big bite out of Maryland. Originally, that is true. It, it kind of does. Originally, there was supposed to be a bottom part of the tri- uh, the diamond as well. So if you imagine the top part being a diamond with those sharp edges as you head up into Maryland, there was supposed to be a bottom part. And I'm, I'm making this diamond with my fingers, not that you can see that, but that's what I'm doing. It was supposed <laughs> to extend into what is Arlington and Alexandria, Virginia. That does not end up happening for a variety of reasons that don't matter to our story. It happens a little later, but they're going to go every mile along this route and put down boundary markers. Some of the boundary markers are still there. They still exist more than 200 years later, and they're called boundary stones. You can go and find them. They're not all there, but there were, I think, 40 of them uh, along the original route. And so he, Banneker is going to be a part of this. He's going to assist Ellicott in doing this. Now, it is a point of contention and debate about how much Banneker's duties, what his duties were, how involved he was in this process. But what his primary duty seems to have been is making astronomical observations and calculations to establish a base point to then measure from there basically to figure out where the the cornerstones are going to be located. He's also going to have, he maintains a clock that is uses to relate points on the ground to the position of stars. So he's, a lot of his role is uncertain. There's a quote that his involvement rests on extremely meager documentation, which is sadly very typical for this. And Basically, it seems that he might have been at the dedication in April 21st, 1791, uh, of the dedication of the first boundary stone. It's not sure what clear whether he was there, but there is no reason to suspect he was not. He is not attached to this project long. He It seems that he leaves at some point after this first stone is dedicated in late April 1791, partly because he's a farmer and he has to go back and you know, farm things. And partly because he wants to calculate, do a bunch of astronomical calculations and create an almanac. So what he really, what Benjamin Banneker really would like to do is create an almanac. We'll get back to that in a minute. To close up the story with the Ellicott's, they are going to complete this journey around and the boundary stones for the federal district. 
Banneker, it seems like, returns home. Okay. So he returns to Ellicott's Mills, now Ellicott City, and he's going to basically create an almanac predicting eclipses, planetary conjunctions, weather patterns, all sorts of interesting, anything that coming from the stars, he's going to be involved in predicting. He's going to use mathematics. He's going to use a bunch of different tools. He is going to apply for admission to the Pennsylvania Society for Promoting the Abolition of Slavery and the Relief of Free Negroes. He is going to write to a bunch of prominent astronomers to get his ideas printed and make an almanac. I think it's worth just underlining that the fact that he publishes an almanac, he publishes a book, is such an incredible achievement. Again, the literacy rates are so low, period, let alone for non-white Americans at this time. And then the fact not only that he has the interest and the content to write a book, but that somebody's willing to publish it. The first books published in 1792, Benjamin Banneker's Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia Almanac and Ephemeris for the Year of Our Lord, 1792. So that's the mouthy title of the first one, but he actually continues to print booklets annually for the next five years. Um, he gets the backing of white abolitionists up north who are not only going to help pay for the printing costs and the distribution, but also will include testimonials in the book to really highlight the fact they're very clear that this was written by a Black astronomer. And they want to use this as an example of how all this discriminatory thought and this very racist thought that's pervading the United States is so wrong-hearted. And in fact, one of the early testimonials says, I consider this author a fresh proof that the powers of the mind are disconnected from the color of the skin. So he is very much to me, and I'll project a little bit here, Banneker to me is a man who's in it for the science, right? He's writing these because he, he loves that he can discover and finish this, but he's playing a really important activist role by, yes. you know, publishing this work and having it reach out into a broader audience. It's a way in which before we even reach the 19th century to showcase that when it comes to intellect, right, there's no difference. And there's no way in which the background of his birth has held him back in terms of his mental capacity. And I just, it, it baffles me and blows my mind that he's able to get supporters and get this book published and continue to publish publish further editions of it over the next few years. We might think today, oh, astronomy, like, okay, that seems like a very academic pursuit. But you got to remember, this is an era where there's nowhere near as much technology as we have today. Astronomy, the movements of the sun and the planets, the weather, this is all going to help farmers. And what is happening primarily in the United States at that time, but farming. So knowing the tides, knowing the weather, knowing when you're going to have an eclipse and you're going to have the placement of the sun, how much daylight you're going to have on a given day, that's going to all be important to farming uses. And from farming, you have the rest of life. Once you've figured out when you can plant and harvest crops, how much time you're going to have to do those things, you can then extrapolate to, okay, these are when we're going to have holidays and festivals because we harvest festivals and things like that. This is also based on when people have to go home to 
tend their farms, we can schedule when the government is going to happen, when the Supreme Court can meet, uh, all kinds of things. And so these are all very useful, important bits of knowledge for people. And so this his almanacs are sold as far north as Trenton and as far south as Richmond, Virginia. So this basically the entire like what we call today the DMV region is basically using his calculations to figure out when they're going to plant things, figure out when they're going to have days they're going to be able to be in the city to buy things and to have courts in session as well as festivals. Like there's a lot of prominent and important planning that's going into what his almanac is publishing. So this is going to be particularly important. It also, he talks about one of his, the editions of a later almanac in 1795 talks about the yellow fever epidemic. They're going to talk about this sort of duration and, and severity of it. There's really a lot going on and that's not just the movement of the planets and the stars. This is really important day-to-day stuff that's going to affect people's livelihoods uh, in significant ways. And so that's kind of, I think, a big part of why Banneker is really cool and important. He also has, he keeps journals, diary. Unfortunately, there will later be a fire that takes a lot of this stuff, so we don't have that much of it. But it is clear that he kept a journal fairly regularly for his adult life. And his political views are also going to be kind of important. As you would probably expect, he is a strong abolitionist and he is very outspoken. He writes essays about this, both under his own name and anonymously, talking about how there basically you can imagine everyone should have the opportunity to do what he has done, which is get an education and use their talents to take them somewhere. He also is going to write a letter to, he has this very contentious correspondence with Thomas Jefferson. And basically, Banneker says, hey, maybe you should extend that Declaration of Independence idea to non-white people. And Jefferson being, he's basically very critical of Thomas Jefferson. He accuses Jefferson of criminally using fraud and violence to oppress his slaves. And it's basically like this really respectful, but yet zinger of a letter where he kind of talks to Jefferson and says, hey, you're not particularly good. He says, and I'll, I'll quote part of this, in detaining by fraud and violence so numerous a part of my brethren under groaning captivity and cruel oppression, you should at the same time be found guilty of that most criminal act, which you professedly detested in others with respect to yourselves. So basically, you're talking about freedom and human dignity, but yet not practicing what you're preaching. And I listen, I love that he calls out Jefferson. I love the idea that somebody tells Jefferson kind of how it is because he's not wrong. <laughs> like, hugely not wrong. Jefferson does not reply directly. <laughs> surprisingly. But he does express support for the advancement of his Black brethren. Which, insert your eye roll here. Yeah. Jefferson's reply is polite. It's characterized as non-committal. <laughs> and basically says, yeah, thank you. I, you know, we should talk more about our Black brethren, but also I'm not going to give up any of my slaves. Because that's Jefferson. I find that to be <laughs> fascinating. I like the idea 
that he has no qualms about telling Jefferson how it is. Just one of those things you can't really imagine. A lot of people had the, particularly at this point, had the guts to do. Like Jefferson's pretty prominent. He's wrote the Declaration of Independence. He's not president yet, but like it's very clear that he's on the path to becoming president. And Benjamin Vanneker has no compunction about just laying it all on the line. Come on. Uh, and this is, you know, Jefferson's heard this from peers and colleagues, people like the Marquis de Lafayette and John Adams have expressed these opinions. But the fact that essentially a farmer from rural Maryland is willing to put pen to paper and call him out is pretty impressive. And it also, I think, illustrates the complexities that surround Jefferson, that Jefferson sort of passively kind of dances around what ben Banneker's throwing at him. He does pass the almanac on to several people and sort of share Banneker's almanac, including sending it to a French philosopher and mathematician friend. But at the same time, he even writes to a friend about 10 years after the initial almanac was published. And Jefferson says, I have a long letter from Banneker that I got a few years ago, which shows him to have the mind of a very common stature indeed, which I think really illustrates the kind of continual pervasive racism that Jefferson embodies, despite his willingness to debate around these philosophical ideas. Um, at the end of the day, Jefferson's fairly dismissive of this. And or after I should say after the fact, after a few years have passed, he shows a real dismissiveness. And so that's Jefferson for you. That is Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> uh, Banneker never marries. There's, in fact, really no evidence of a personal life at all. It seems to have been a chronic alcoholic, which worsens as he ages. And for reasons that are not clear, he publishes an almanac in 1797, and that was the last ones that printers published. He dies nine years later, probably in his log cabin uh, in October of 1806. The date is somewhat disputed. He was 74 years old. He sold a lot of his home site to the Ellicott's uh, and maintained a very little land holding nearby what's now Ellicott City. We don't know why no later issues of his almanac were published, whether that was a decision on the part of the publishers, whether he never wrote another one, whether he's infirm or has a stroke or is in some way incapacitated. We don't know. There is no evidence either way. On the day of his funeral in 1806, a fire burns his log cabin, which destroys a lot of his belongings and papers. So we don't have, unfortunately, a lot of sort of firsthand documents, a lot of things that he wrote. Very little of that survives. There is an early manuscript that was not at his log cabin for his first almanac that has survived. And there are some handwritten letters. In fact, one of the letters he writes, Thomas Jefferson survives in Massachusetts, as well as Jefferson's reply actually survives at the Library of Congress. But a, most of his sort of diaries, his log books, all those sorts of things, unfortunately, do not survive, which is a bummer. Uh, the family, his descendants of the Ellicott's have auctioned some of his items later on. Several of them are being preserved in the Maryland Historical Society now. And some of the artifacts are actually in the Banneker Douglas Museum in Annapolis, Maryland. And I think it's worth noting that there is an interest among those who'd known him in his lifetime to try to preserve some of his history and his story. In fact, some of the earliest biographies about him come from George Ellicott's daughter, Martha Ellicott Tyson. She becomes Tyson when she marries. But she writes two biographies of 
Banneker based on her parents and uncles and sort of family's recollections of him and, and working with him and what they knew about him. John H.B. Latrobe, who was actually the son of Benjamin Latrobe, a very significant architect in early Washington, D.C., Maryland area will also create this biography that's essentially a collection of uh, reminiscences of people who had known Banneker, met him, interacted with him. So there is sort of this concerted effort by those that knew him to kind of say, okay, we know that there was this tragic fire. We know that a lot of his writing's been lost outside of the almanac. How can we sort of share the history? So there is a little effort that's done there at that time. I think for me, though, Benjamin Banneker really is can become in some some ways and for and often thought of I think as a symbol right he symbolizes I think the potential of so many black americans in the early years of our history and sort of the either complications or obstacles that prevent people from perhaps fulfilling that full potential and often how easy it is for those stories and those accomplishments and those achievements to be lost. There are, as I alluded to earlier, so many myths surrounding Banneker and as a tour guide and a public historian, it can be challenging. People will say, well, I heard this about Banneker and, you know, why don't, why don't you talk about how Banneker created the first clock ever made? And it's like, well, that's not, that's not what he did. And I don't think it does a service to to share a myth, but I think I understand why people are so connected to the stories they've heard about Banneker growing up or that they see online is because of what it represents, right? It's a reminder that there are so many important aspects of our history, so many people um, whose stories we don't know and whose names sometimes we don't even know because of the way in which our, our country was founded and the way in which we have operated as a nation. Yes. And just it's, he's so much a glimpse of what we've lost, of what has been lost in terms of potential and intellect and ideas. And so that's Benjamin Vinegar. I think he's really fascinating. And particularly as in D.C., he's well represented. There's a high, very prominent, important high school in D.C. named for Benjamin Banneker. He's got statues. The area that he his cabin was at is a historic site. There's a museum. We'll link it up in the show notes. And so there's a lot of Latter-day interest. He has a statue at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Uh, so there's kind of a lot going on. But he is sort of a local hero and somebody that I wanted to know more about personally. And so that's kind of why I suggested that we kind of delve into this because he's somebody that we it, particularly as tour guides in DC we should know a little bit more about his role in founding the city absolutely and you know for locals I encourage you to get out and find those Banneker sites a lot of people don't realize we do have a park that is meant to be a memorial to Benjamin Banneker it's right at sort of the end of L'Enfance Plaza very close to the wharf close to the spy museum in the downtown area it was 1970 is when the D.C. City Council uh, sort of passed a resolution to petition the National Park Service to turn what was simply called the Overlook into Benjamin Banneker Park. It takes a couple of years for NPS to do that and a little bit longer for plaques and things to go in. It was sort of reassessed about 20 years ago and then just redone again a couple years ago. But that is a space where it's easy to walk by and not realize that's what it is. But I encourage you, next time you're in the wharf area, next time you're sort of a little south of the National Mall there, go check out Benjamin Banneker Park. It is meant to be his memorial. Um, there is some, some good signage there to talk a little bit about Benjamin Banneker and his contributions. But we do have a space in D.C., that's open to the public that you can find easily, relatively easily, that honors him. Yay. Thanks, everybody, for coming along on our 
sort of local trip through Benjamin Banneker's life and times. And we will be back with more goodness for you in a couple of weeks. And thank you as ever to our patrons who are fabulous and you are getting a special bonus episode this month. So make sure to look out for that. And we will be back with you. Thank you guys. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye.